0: to take them now. The rest of us will be in uh, Galatians chapter 1. As as Michael said, we've been working our way through uh, the book of Galatians. Galatians was originally written to churches in a geographical area then known as Galatia. It is in what is now modern-day Turkey. And God's been using uh, this little letter, it's only six chapters, but he's been using it ever since to help Churches understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And in that way, it's been a tremendous source of hope and help to people just like us who are prone to try to get right with God based on what we do. The Galatian churches were in the process of wandering away from God and His gospel of grace. And perhaps that is indicative of some of us, that we have been seeking to add to the gospel by incorporating what we do as what makes us right with God. These uh, churches in Galatia were being taught through false teachers, as we considered last week if you were here, that the way you are right with God is by Jesus plus good works, and that's what equals salvation. And yet Paul's going to very carefully say that the way this actually works is if you try to make it Jesus plus anything else, then you'll actually end up with nothing because you can't add to a gospel of grace and it still be a gospel. There is only one gospel and it is a gospel fully and completely full of grace and grace alone. So These false teachers had come in after Paul, and they were teaching that Paul wasn't really an apostle, that his message wasn't really the true message, and, as we'll carefully see this morning, that Paul's motive in not requiring people to obey the Old Testament law, particularly the ceremonial law, Paul's motive for not requiring that anymore was that he wanted people to like him, that he wanted people to accept him. And that's why he was changing what God's people had always taught. Now, the the temptation to live for the praise of people is ever-present, isn't it? Can you think back over your last seven days and how you have faced that temptation? It's been there. Uh, Maybe you've recognized there's a big fluctuation in your mood based on how someone reacts to you. Maybe you've found yourself horrified at a moment in which you got a poor performance review at work or a test score that was lower than you expected at school. Maybe you found yourself devastated that a, a dating relationship didn't move forward like you expected it to. The temptation in all these situations is to modify what you know to be true in order to find yourself approved by people. And that's what the false teachers were accusing Paul of doing. They're saying, you have so modified and twisted what God says in order to be liked and approved by people that you're no longer worthy to be even considered an apostle. So this certainly begs the question, did Paul do that? Did he take out scissors and cut off the parts of the gospel that are less appealable? Has he sanded down the edges of God's command in order that the Gentiles would more easily receive it? Is his gospel nothing more than human invention in order to be approved by God? People. Well, these questions are where Paul turns in this next section of the book of Galatians. This morning we'll be starting a section that will take us uh, past today. There's too much material to cover in one morning. We'll see together the next few weeks that through the remainder of chapter one and all of chapter two, Paul sort of uh, unzips his own backstory. And lets us peer in. Lets us see what his heart was like before God, before Jesus. If you are young, then you would call this Paul's story. If you're older, like me, you'd call it his testimony. Uh, but either way, the point is the same. Paul's going to be seeking to tell us this: that uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is trustworthy, and it's transformative because its origin is divine. He's going to be telling us you can trust what God has said and you can count on His gospel as being sufficient to change you because God is its author. Imagine with me before we read the passage in just a moment that we are no longer sitting in a church building, but we've entered a courtroom. And Paul And his gospel are on trial. And the charges that have been brought are that Paul is a fraud and his gospel is an abdication of how someone is actually to be made right with God. And Paul has now taken the stand. His attorney has come up and begun to ask questions. And in what's rather surprising, Paul doesn't go into an intricate, ornate theological triage. Instead, he goes into his own autobiography. He enters himself as evidence. He says, the way you'll know that my gospel is true is by considering who I was before Jesus and what happened when I met Jesus and What's now true after that encounter I had with Jesus? This is Paul on the witness stand saying, the gospel I preached is God's gospel. I'm the evidence. Galatians 1, verses 10 to 24 are where Paul gives his evidence. His evidence before, his evidence during, and his evidence after. Let's start together considering who Paul was before Jesus. We'll see this in Galatians 1, 10 through 16. Follow along with me in your Bible. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I didn't receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, among my own people, So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. This is Paul's articulation of what he was like before he met Jesus. Today it's very popular, especially in the entrepreneurial world, world, to talk about winning. Paul was winning before he met Jesus. He was succeeding at everything he had set out to do, he was winning in what the religious game of the day taught him was how to be made right with God. He was successful. If you look there at verse 13, he's describing himself as a violent persecutor of the church, somebody who was fully committed to its destruction. In other words, Paul was hardened against Jesus. He had heard the claims of Christ, he had heard what the followers of Jesus said was true about him, and yet he rejected it. This was not somebody unfamiliar with Jesus. He knew the claims of the gospel, he knew the claims of Christ, he knew that Jesus said he came back from the dead. Paul was a brilliant man, and yet he was convinced that Christianity was blasphemy, And as a result, he hated Christians and he devoted his life to their ruin. And don't miss this, he was doing all of that in the name of God. Paul thought Jesus was a phony blasphemer. And he was so sure that he was following town after town after town, making sure all the churches being started were being ended on verse 14 he says that he was excelling in Judaism with all its laws and its customs and its traditions now these are special precise words and what paul's saying is not only did i do everything the old testament required of me but i went far beyond that you see all the additional stuff that a pharisee that the judaizers claimed were still necessary. Paul's saying, I did all that stuff. I followed the laws, and the laws that kept you from disobeying the laws, and the laws that kept you from disobeying the laws that kept you from disobeying the laws. I did all of them. I was fully committed. So the picture we have here is of someone certain of his convictions, and committed to God as he conceived of him. Paul, I think, was one of those guys that would have been able to accomplish a lot of stuff and yet exhausting to be around. He was intense. He was a guy committed to extinguishing the lie that Jesus rose from the dead and the blasphemy that salvation is found in him. Now, this was quite literally the last person on the planet who should ever have become a Christian. Isn't God hysterical? In fact, uh, when the very first Christian martyr was in the process of dying, a guy named Stephen, the book of Acts tells us that Paul was there. No need to turn there, just look on the screens. Acts chapter 8 says this, and Saul, this is Paul's name before he became a Christian, and Saul approved of his execution. The he there is a guy named Stephen who had just given a brilliant testimony of what Jesus had done for him. They drug him out of town, threw him down in a valley, and threw rocks at him until he died. Saul was there. Now listen to what the rest of the text says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were scattered throughout all the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them. To prison. Paul was devoted to the total destruction of every church and every Christian. This is who Paul was before Jesus. But then something happened. If you turn the page from Acts 8 to Acts 9, here on the screen you'll see it says, but Saul, still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of God, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, that's what Christians were called in the earliest days, just simply the way. Men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way. Friends, that start of verse 3 is such a fantastic description of everyone who knows Jesus before they met Jesus. Now, as we went on our way, Paul, in this case, had gotten those letters from Jerusalem. He got on his horse. He was headed with his posse, traveling To Jerusalem to go to a new city in order to persecute new Christians. And yet something happened. Paul was hell-bent away from God and God's people, and he wanted nothing to do with Jesus. But then God intervened. Christian, as you look back and think back on your own story, isn't that true of you? Now, certainly that you weren't headed to Damascus with letters to persecute Christians. And you most likely weren't on a horse. But weren't you going your own way? The next few verses show us what I've simply summarized by the word during. On that way to Damascus, God revealed Jesus Paul, look at verse 15 and you'll see it. Paul says, but when he, he is God, God the Father, when God who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me. Friends, the risen Lord appeared to Paul, Paul of all people. Imagine what a shock that must have been. If you want to read more about it, you can look later today at the rest of Acts chapter 9. Here in Galatians 1, we, we only get sort of the, the telescope, zooming in, very narrow view of what happened to Paul. But in Acts chapter 9, and then even more in Acts chapter 22, when Paul. At length recounts his testimony, you can see all the detail. But here we find simply the bare facts. Paul was sure that Jesus was dead, but then God the Father sent God the Son and he appeared to Paul, showing that not only is he alive, but the gospel that Paul had rejected is correct. And in that moment, Paul was converted. And he was called, he was called not only to be a Christian, but to be an apostle. By the power and the grace of God, Paul was converted that day and called to preach the gospel he had been setting out everywhere he went to extinguish. In scandalous grace, God forgave him. God cleansed him. God gave him new life. Look carefully at that phrase that God set him apart before he was born. Friends, Paul's careful here to say, I'm not a Christian because I myself came to see the truth. He's saying, I'm not a Christian because I, I figured out exactly the right path and came to follow it. He's saying, I'm I'm not a Christian because I had followed all those laws in the Old Testament. He's saying, quite simply, I came to see Jesus for who Jesus is because before I was ever born, God had already decided that that's what He would accomplish in my life. Friends, that's how grace works. Grace is received. It's not achieved. Grace is given. It's not earned. Grace is God's idea, not our invention. This gospel wasn't something Paul looked for. It wasn't something he came up with. It was God sovereignly intervening and smacking him upside his head. The grace of Jesus Christ is God's work from start to finish. God was pleased to reveal his son to Jesus. Christian, can you think back to when God was pleased to reveal his son to you? Now, particularly if you were born to parents, to a mother or a father who already knew Jesus and from diapers started bringing you, your diapers, not theirs, to, to church, then your story may not be as dramatic. You may not remember seeking to ravage the church and kill Christians, but your opposition in your disobedience to your parents is no less cause for your separation against God. James, in the book of James, said that if we fail in one part of what God has commanded, then we fail in it all. And certainly, you and I have thereby fallen in it all. And yet, God, in His grace and mercy, chose to reveal the Son to us. Paul, in another book, in the book of 1 Timothy, recounted a bit more of his story in this way. He said, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus, our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent opponent. Just put in there your own words of what you were. They fit. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord Jesus overflowed for me With the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, this saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost. Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example for those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Brothers and sisters, let yourself think back this morning to who you were before you knew Jesus. While the details are different, the essence is exactly the same. We were in opposition to God. We were bound up in our own stuff. We were hopeless and helpless. Think of how God has transformed you, how he's infused you with new desires, how he's in the process of changing your character, how you find yourself doing things you never, ever, ever would have done, how you've stopped all kinds of things that used to be fun, and now they make you feel wretched and miserable. Think of the people you hang out with. Think of the way in which God has so graciously intervened. Think of the great privileges you now enjoy of knowing Jesus. Paul was changed by his encounter with Christ on that Damascus road. And wherever you were, even if you don't remember the exact day, You too have been changed by Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you're hearing this sermon, and you would say, well, I have yet to have anything like that. Maybe you're like Michael. You've been around religious things, and yet there hasn't actually been an encounter with Christ. Well, friend, maybe God has brought you here today for that reason. This gospel of Jesus Christ has transformed not only Paul's life, not only Michael's life, but literally billions of people over the last 2,000 years. And a couple hundred of them will gather here at Church on Mill today. We'd love to tell you more about how God has changed us, how we have encountered Jesus, And so, we want to encourage you to stick around after the gathering ends in a a little bit, 15, 20 minutes from now. Stick around and ask the people who you know, what has Jesus done in you? Who were you before you met Jesus? What's your particular story of how you met Jesus? I'm confident there'll be many in the room who'd be happy to tell you. The particulars will be different, but the essence is the same. We were in opposition against God, maybe even doing religious things to make ourselves appear right with God. And yet, God, in His grace, intervened. Of course, friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, but you do believe that. Jesus left heaven, came to earth, lived the life we were supposed to live, died the death that we deserved, and yet rose again to demonstrate that that was acceptable as a sacrifice to God. If you're you're there, if you recognize all of that to be true, then you, you don't need to ask anybody else for their story. You have enough. You're ready. Right now, you can turn from sin and turn to Christ because Jesus' death is sufficient to make you right with God. All that God asks is not that you do anything to clean yourself up, but rather that you simply recognize before Him in prayer, I I can't clean myself up, but you can. God, would you reveal your Son and change me? I think this is particularly important to, to see You don't need, none of us need, to physically, with our eyes, see Jesus. I think this is critically important in this particular passage to understand. Paul didn't need to see Jesus in order to be saved. That's that's not why Jesus appeared to him. He needed to see Jesus in order to become an apostle. An apostle who would help build the early church and who would write the scriptures that we now read today. He didn't need to see Jesus in order to be saved. He needed to see Jesus in order to be set apart as an apostle. And so, friend, don't make the mistake of using the excuse that you've never seen Jesus with your eyes as a reason to say, I won't follow Jesus with my life. Because the way Jesus is seen today is not with our eyes. He is ruling and reigning in heaven, seated by the Father, where He is the King over all. Physically speaking, He is not here. He is here spiritually through the Spirit, where He's living in Christians' lives, ever-changing us from the wreck that we were. Nobody needs to see Jesus physically today to be made right with God because none of us are being set apart as apostles. And yet God is still very much setting apart people to be sons and daughters, brothers and sisters. The way we see Jesus today is by hearing His Word and by hearing it with faith. So friend, if you're not a follower of Christ, do you hear this morning with faith? Do you hear in such a way that you believe? Well, if so, then you are seeing Jesus. We see Jesus spiritually by encountering Him in His Word. Now, this is Paul's story. This is who he was before. This is what happened that changed him so radically now, just for a moment, would you consider with me who he was after? Paul's evidence, he's still on the witness stand. He's given us exhibit A, who I was before, exhibit B, here's what happened to me, and here's his exhibit C, his story of what came after. But before I read these verses, notice something so cool in this text. Paul's saying, here's, what, here's who I was before. And everything about that is I, 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 I. But, but then what we just read, when he met Jesus, the whole focus shifts to God. Here's what God did, what God did, what God did. And then in this, this after bit, it's all about how Paul's different and leading him because of what God did. And so the eye shifts its focus to God. This is what happens when people meet Jesus. Look with me at the latter half of verse 16. In order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I didn't immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Those to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to Cephas. That's another name for Peter. And remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went up to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches that are in Christ Jesus. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now persecuting the faith he once tried to destroy. And the glorified God because of me. Now, frankly, I think verses 16 to 24 appear rather boring on the surface. It feels a bit like you've pulled up uh, Travelocity or TripAdvisor, and you're reading through the travel log of somebody who, here's where I went and who I was with and who I talked to. And you just want to say, who cares? But underneath that is is something incredibly powerful. Behind the who and what and where is Paul's final in this section argument, his final piece of evidence for why is Gospels trustworthy. He's careful here to say, that I am an independent witness of Jesus Christ. He's careful to say, this thing happened to me and I didn't, the next day, go to Jerusalem to to, to sort of find out if what I thought I heard was right by checking it with the other apostles. He's saying, "What, what you're hearing from me is God's gospel. And it's being transmitted through God directly through me to you. I didn't get it from the other apostles. Now, why does that matter so much? Well, it's, friend, because the false teachers who had come in were teaching. All the apostles got all of the gospel wrong. They they were all in cahoots, if you will. They were all saying, you don't need to follow works in order to be made right with God and they all got it from the same place in Jerusalem. Paul here is refuting that. He's saying, without any intermediary, Jesus revealed himself to me. He's saying, no human being taught me the gospel of grace. And that is why, as an apostle, his gospel is trustworthy. These verses show us, as one commentator put it, Paul's first visit to Jerusalem was only after three years. And it was only for two weeks. And he only saw two apostles. Therefore, it's ludicrous to think everything he taught was only trickle-down gospel from the apostles. He got it from God himself. Friends, he got it from Jesus. Jesus. The Galatian churches and all of us today know the truth about Jesus through the apostolic witness given to us in the Scriptures. It is through the written Word that we encounter the living Word. And so this is of utmost importance. Paul is trustworthy. He's saying, I am the living proof. We'll learn more next week about the additional evidence that he mounts. But for Paul, everything changed the day he met Jesus. Friends, I think the application here for us as Christians is so simple and easy. Because the same thing is true for us. When we met Jesus... Everything changed. Amen? May we use this passage this morning to be reminded of who we were before and what happened as we encountered Christ in His Word and what now is true about us. That certainly in a much less probably severe, if you want to use that word, way, we have been changed and are now spending our lives doing things we never, ever, ever dreamed we would do. Most principally, living for Christ, living among God's people with Christ, and being sent out in all kinds of different ways to share Christ. This is what God's doing, and He's doing it through us. The Lord's given us a very tangible way, even a tactile way, to remember all of this. It's called the Lord's Supper. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. and Then I want to invite you to stand and sing. And those of you who are followers of Jesus Christ and who who have covenanted with some local church, you're a member there, I want to invite you to take the bread and the cup and to, to hang on to it. And as you hang on to it and as you're singing, I want to invite you to remember who you were before Jesus who you now are because of Jesus, and how He has bound us together. And then I'll come back up and lead us as we take the bread and the cup to remember both the death of Jesus and the fact that we one day will see Jesus with our eyes when He returns. We will meet Him for the ultimate supper with Christ. So would you stand with me now as I pray, and we'll sing. Lord God, thank you for your word, thank you for how you have changed us, thank you for Jesus Christ, thank you for Paul who tells us the truth about him, thank you that in your grace and mercy you are changing us into people who now know him, love him, and are being changed by him thoroughly and completely. Father, I pray in particular for this moment that as we take this Lord's Supper, this bread and cup, that we would have a fresh, new encounter with the risen King. That this wouldn't just be a religious rite, a hoop to jump through, but a physical reminder that as we taste the bread, we're reminding Christ's body was broken for us. And as we drink the cup, that we would be reminded physically, that Jesus died. His blood was shed for us. And as we sing these words together and we hear each other singing, that we would be reminded that we've been bound together in the Lord Jesus Christ, in the church. We pray that those of us who know you but have felt distant from you of late, your spirit would be encountering a fresh wind of what you've done. And that you in a new way would bind us together as brothers and sisters. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.